Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, will you please turn with me to the book of James, James chapter 5. I'm sad to say that we're almost finished with this letter. We've come to James's final words in this, this precious, precious letter. 5 verse 12 to 20 is the last section of the book. It uh, wraps up, James wraps up by touching on three issues that he believes is important. And each of those involves speech. One of the reasons that James has been such a hard-hitting letter is that it speaks about the power of the tongue and the damage that the tongue can cause in the church and in the life of the believer. But James wants more for these believers who are struggling under the weight of their trials. Last week, therefore, we saw in 5 verse 7 to 11 his call to patience and suffering, to establishing our hearts for the coming of the Lord. And now as he closes the letter, James wants to invite the church into a way of life where the tongue is a, a source of blessing in the community of faith. For the church in the trenches, seeking to persevere together, speech is important. James is going to address truthful speech in verse 12, and prayerful speech in verses 13 to 18, and finally, restorative speech in verses 19 and 20. Now, this section is too much to cover in one week, so I decided to do something that really, really hurts my love of sequence and of order. By far the largest section is the middle section on prayer in verses 13 to 18. So we're just going to cover this topic, the prayer, and specifically prayer for healing this week, and then we'll come back next week, God willing, to, to wrap things up. Let's read together James 5, verse 13 to 18, and then we'll pray. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Let's pray. Our Father... We do come before you, Lord, because we know that we have been invited by you. And so we approach your throne boldly with confidence that your ear hears what we have to say. We approach your throne today and we ask, Lord, for, for you to do another miracle among us, for your spirit who dwells within us, to be among us. We pray that you would use this passage to help us, Lord. Help us to examine our hearts and our lives. 
Help us to examine our practice. And Lord, we pray that we would be made holier through this time, more like Jesus as we see him and, and love him, we pray. Amen. Amy Carmichael, the well-known and beloved missionary to India, described in her journal the attempted healing of a, a treasured co-worker, a woman named Ponamal. Ponamal was diagnosed with cancer in 1913 and within two years was very, very sick. Amy was aware of James's prescription in this passage to call for the elders to anoint the ill and offer the prayer of faith. But she and her fellowship were unsure how to go about doing it and if they should do it now. So Amy prayed that if they should, that God would send someone their way who was earnest about the practice. He did come, an old friend from Madras, and Elizabeth Elliot, her biographer, described what happened. She wrote this, It was a solemn meeting around the sickbed. The women dressed as usual in their hand-loomed saris, but white ones for this occasion. They laid a palm branch across Panamal's bed as a sign of victory and accepted whatever answer God might give, certain that whether it was to be physical healing or not, he would give victory and peace. It sounds like a simple formula. It was an act of faith, but certainly accompanied by the anguish of doubt and desire which had to be brought again and again under the authority of their master. The answer that came was that Panamal, from the very day of the anointing, grew rapidly worse. In the aftermath, uh, Carmichael wrote in her journal, she has been walking, speaking of Panamal, she has been walking through the valley of the shadow of death. I never knew how dense that shadow could become, for I never before watched anyone dying in the slow, terrible way. Ponamal's pain increased until she reached her limit. And finally, as, as Elizabeth Elliot says, her warfare was accomplished. Healing never came for her, at least not in this life. In contrast to the story, I was reading another story this week, an account by a reformed Presbyterian pastor whose friend had a viral infection of the heart that left him very sick and listless. The friend asked for what James prescribes. The pastor says that being Presbyterians and reformed Presbyterians, the elders studied for about six weeks hoping that he wouldn't die in the meantime before finally going to his sickbed. In that case, prayer actually brought about physical healing. Why does God give healing in one case, but not in another? We are left to wrestle with the truth that sometimes our desires for alleviation from suffering do not line up with God's purposes in our lives. Sometimes we pray in earnest, and God says, no, your suffering continues. Your loved one dies. Your trials don't ease up. What do we do? Do we turn around and say, thank you for nothing. The Bible seems to work for others, but it doesn't work for me. No. It's important that we understand passages like this one in context and in the context of all of Scripture. And I'm going to just say off the bat that this is one of the hardest passages in the book of James to interpret. Research was very, very difficult this week. 
When scholars are scratching their heads, you know, as a little Baptist pastor who's committed to covering everything and not avoiding any topics, you're in trouble. I'll do my best to deal with the difficult parts and I ask for your grace, but ultimately it's my prayer that underneath all of this and despite my weakness, you would hear in what James is saying, the wonderful invitation that exists for the church today. The one he wants to give to struggling believers. He's a pastor eager to help those who are persevering in trial. And there isn't anything better, not a single thing better that James has to offer than what he offers in this passage. Pray. Come to the Father who is waiting for you. In terms of a structure, I'm borrowing from one of the commentators because there's pretty clear four sections to this passage. We see in verse 13, the praying Christian. In verses 14 to 15, the praying elders. And then the praying church in verse 16. And finally, the praying prophet in verses 17 and 18. Number one, let's look at the praying Christian. In verse 13, James asks a rhetorical question. It's a question he already knows the answer to. Is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone here suffering? Are you suffering today? Maybe it is big. Trials that you feel are overwhelming your life. Maybe it's the sickness that James is talking about. Maybe it's not so big. Maybe it's little burdens that just always live in the corners of your mind. Whatever it is, life is full of suffering. What does James have to offer us in this reality? Three simple words he says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Let him pray. Does that seem trite to you? James is not trying to be trite. In those words is a blessing, a well that is too deep for us to fathom. It is, I believe, a reality for every single believer that we vastly underestimate the treasure that we have in prayer. We are keenly aware of the material world around us, but spiritually, so often we are dull to the immensity of the blessings that are ours in Christ. And in these three little words, let him pray, we have the blessing of invitation. Of invitation. In Hebrews 4, we're told that because of what Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest, did for us through his death on the cross, and only because of what he did for us, we are invited to draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We're invited to come right to the throne of grace. That's the invitation in these three little words. Let him pray. God is saying to the church, if you are suffering, draw near to me and let me draw near to you. I'm an ever-present help in your trouble and all that you need. Charles Spurgeon said, heaven's great harbor of refuge is prayer. Thousands of weather-beaten vessels have found a haven there. And the moment a storm comes on, it is wise for us to make for it with all sail. The answer to our suffering is prayer. It's an opportunity to set full sail in our hearts towards God. 
We are given full audience with the one to whom belongs every resource on heaven and on earth. The one who stands above our storms, who is in full control over every aspect of our lives. And he's not irritated to give that audience. It's not a begrudging ear that he turns to us. The one with every resource is the one who loves with the perfect love of a father. And he's the one who loves to receive us. He rejoices when his children cast their cares upon him. When we say, and it's the attitude of our lives and of our hearts, that you must save, you must help, and you alone. I need you. Oh, I need you every hour. And more than mere resources of help, what prayer affords is his very presence in our suffering. And that's a gift greater far and more enduring, with more enduring consequences than just the removal of pain and suffering. Prayer gives more than the alleviation of trial. It reorders our perspectives. When we come and present our request with thanksgiving to Him, it brings our trouble. Prayer brings your trouble into the realm of grand purpose. It aligns your heart with His glory. And with the mandate that he's given of living a life worthy of the gospel, prayer lights our hearts with his goodness and, and helps us to rest and set our hearts on eternity. Are you suffering? Pray. James asks a second question because life is not only suffering. There are days of peace and times of ease where burdens are relatively light. Such is the mercy of God to break up our pain. But if it's possible that in our suffering we can be spiritually dull to the blessing of invitation, then that certainly is true, isn't it, in the times of ease? Trouble can give rise to a weariness and to the abandoning of spiritual disciplines as we feel beaten down. But equally, times of ease beget complacency and even self-sufficiency. You know that your trouble is intended to break that in your life, that sense of dependence on yourself. It would be a terrible fate in this world of sin if God never allowed trials to come our way. So James asks, is anyone cheerful? Then let him sing praise. Let him sing praise. John Calvin, I believe, captures this verse so well. He says, James means in this couplet of prayer and praise that there is no time in which God does not invite us to himself. We have a God for all seasons. So his invitation is for every season of life in the land that is plentiful and on the road that is marked with suffering. And praise is an important form of prayer. In times of cheer, it is praise that keeps our hearts aligned with the spiritual reality of our dependence upon God. So let me encourage you today. Do you sing? And I don't mean just metaphorically. I mean, really, do you sing? Do you sing praise? We take very seriously the time that we have together On a Sunday morning when we come and we gather, we think very carefully about the songs that we sing. Singing digs deep roots into our lives. It takes deep theology and plants that truth into our hearts, stored up for later. Singing strengthens our hearts for future suffering and it lifts us up in present trial. And singing is for teaching. Did you know that, believer? 
When you come and you sing, that singing is for teaching, for teaching those around you, for building one another up. Oh, how many times I've walked into church feeling despair, downcast in my soul, only to listen and to hear the voices of the saints around me, singing the truths that I believe in my heart, teaching me. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Is anyone suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. It's an invitation for all of life to spiritual blessing that overshadows your physical circumstances. Alec Matia in his commentary says this, James is calling us to hallow every pleasure and sanctify each pain. Our whole life, we might say, should be so angled towards God that whatever strikes upon us, whether sorrow or joy, should be deflected upwards at once into His presence. Well, Having laid this foundation, James gets specific now with the third question, which brings us to the second heading, praying elders. Number two, look at verse 14 and 15 with me. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. If you ask seven theologians to explain this section, you're bound to get seven different nuanced interpretations. And we want to understand what James is saying here. It's a very practical section. I'm going to do my best, all right, to unpack this by by asking what I believe is the right questions. Number one, why call the elders? Why does James say, call the elders? Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Prayer is not the duty of the elders alone. We'll see in verse 16 how prayer is a ministry for everyone in the church. God doesn't work exclusively through elders to bring healing. He doesn't say, call for the elders who have the gift of healing. We can be regular And we should be regular in praying for one another, expecting God to answer those prayers. But it's not one or the other, is it? It's appropriate at times. It's appropriate for the shepherds of the church to give spiritual care. And the situation James has here in mind of severe sickness makes it appropriate to call the elders. Perhaps those with deep and rich experience in walking with God to come and love and to pray with discernment. And just for for noting here, what does this assume when James says, call the elders? It assumes something about every believer, doesn't it? That every believer belongs to a body. That in that body, there's a group of believers and there's a group of elders recognized by that body. James is talking here about local church and the importance of belonging to one another. Question number two, why prayer and anointing? Why prayer and anointing? Let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. 
This practice is mentioned only here and one other time in the New Testament. In Mark 6 verse 13 where the twelve anoint many sick people and heal them. And neither here nor there is any explanation given. And so what I'm going to do is I'll start with what I believe it, it isn't saying. I don't believe this is support for the Catholic Church's sacrament, for example, of extreme unction, that ministry to those on their deathbed. Um, there is no spiritual healing powers in the oil. The anointing itself is not a vehicle of grace. It's not an act that actually removes sin. It is God through prayer and the prayer of faith who heals. It's not the oil that heals. Some have suggested that the oil serves a medicinal purpose. Come and pray and bring medicine as the situation requires. Uh, for me, the problem here is the language of anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. There's no evidence in the New Testament of that language ever being used in terms of medicinal or physical healing. And why the elders? James is not saying here that you are to forego the calling of physicians and other forms of treatment. So some see another practical reason that the oil was just a culturally appropriate vehicle of care and or um, stimulation of faith. It was loving, for example, for the disciples, for Mary to anoint Jesus' head and, her, and his feet with oil, with perfume. So this is a part of love in that culture. This makes sense to me. It does make sense to me, but because of the context, I don't want to rule out the fourth possibility that, that it is symbolic. The oil is symbolic. There's rich symbolism in the Bible around the, the anointing of oil. Uh, it's a symbolism of consecration to God's service. So James might here be prescribing anointing in line with biblical imagery to vividly show how the person is being set apart for, special, for God's special care. There may be another symbolic purpose of the oil related to the next question. So question number three, what is the connection between sin and sickness? Did you pick that up while we were reading? Verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. James, throughout this passage, seems intentionally to be using words that have meaning not just in physical healing. So the word save, for example, save the one who is sick, is an interesting choice. It is used at times in the Gospels in reference to physical healing, but its more common use is spiritual. And James says clearly, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. In verse 16, he ties the physical and the spiritual together. When he is speaking to the whole church, he says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now as we look at this, we're careful because Scripture makes it clear that if you're sick, you shouldn't assume that it's because of specific sin. In John's Gospel, for example, John chapter 9, Jesus and the disciples come across a man who had been born blind. And you see the kind of thinking uh, around sickness in that culture that the disciples ask Jesus. He was born blind. So who was it who sinned? Was it him or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither. But so that God's glory could be displayed in his life. And the book of Job puts pay to the bad theology that suggests there must be a direct correlation between sickness and sin, specific sin. But 
The Bible does recognize that some sickness is in fact the result of specific sin in your life. There are a few passages that you could go to, but one of the, I think the clearest one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The members of the church in Corinth were sinning. They were guilty of sin by abusing the Lord's Supper. And so Paul writes to them, he says this in verses 27 to 30. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And then he says this. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. And he says, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So we see a, a, a reality here in the Corinthian church that because of their sin, the abuse of the Lord's Supper, God actually, as part of discipline, was causing them to be sick, and some even had died. Now remember that James has addressed some serious problems in this church, hasn't he? There's double-mindedness and spiritual inconsistency. There's divisions among them and quarrels and favoritism. This context, I believe, makes it perfectly understandable why he would say, call the elders. The sickness may, not must, but may also be a spiritual matter where Christian leadership is helpful for the sick person James is speaking of, time in, in bed provides a, an opportunity for prayerful self-examination, for doing business with the Lord, for repentance, for confession to God. We're to be ruthless with sin in our lives, to have the attitude in the heart that we will not harbor sin, that we're not going to cherish secret sin, but we'll repent before the Lord. And then James says, let the elders come and pray. Let them anoint him, perhaps symbol symbolic of consecration, saying, this believer belongs heart and soul to you, O Lord. If it is discipline intended to bring the sinner to repentance, that discipline will be lifted, James says. The sick person will be well, both in body and spirit. If sin is not the cause, God still heals and can heal through prayer. So before we continue, an application of this passage is to ask, are you harboring sin in your life? Is there sin, maybe secret sin, that you refuse to put to death? This passage should also be preventative, not just prescriptive. Don't take sin lightly. Question number four, then what do we do with this passage? What do we do with it? Years ago, I remember a church member um, got sick. He had uh, cancer, and he believed it was God's discipline because of specific sin in his life. And I remember thinking at the time, surely not. Surely not, and pointing to Job and Job's story. In hindsight, I would not be as quick to dismiss what the brother said. He may or may not have been right in that situation, but if he had requested what James calls for in this passage, I would have been inclined to agree. Our elders don't need to be called for every sickness. We are to care for one another. It's a ministry that belongs to all. For example, I believe home group is so important in the life of the believer or some kind of community in the church where care 
that this level of primary care should be given. But there may be times in severe sickness, severe suffering, whether you believe sin is the cause or not, after prayer, it might be good to call the elders, appropriate to call the elders, say, please come around me and help me in my suffering. The elders can discern as well if they believe God is, is calling to go. Does there need to be oil? Uh, personally, my leaning is that there's a cultural element to this that is somewhat lost among us, but I believe if there's a conviction that it would be helpful, maybe as a, a sign of care, or even in the building up of faith, then I wouldn't oppose it. It might be appropriate. And before we continue, one more question here. As I was reading, I was really struggling with this. What do we make of James's confidence in this passage? James says the Lord will raise him up. He doesn't say the Lord may raise him up. Some say, well, whether healing today or resurrection after death, there'll be healing one way or another. I think that's reading a little too much into what James is saying here. I don't believe there's anything more than in the words than just that God will raise him up from the sick bed. But again, we must interpret James as well in the light of all of Scripture. And so as we come to this passage, we need to be careful and we have to reject that's what some teach, that the only decisive factor here is faith, that if there is enough faith, then there will be healing. Now, faith is important, and it is true, I know it's true of my own life, that I do not pray in faith often enough. I do not pray enough expecting for God to answer my prayer positively. Faith is important. In chapter 1, James says that we are to come to God when we are in trial, asking for wisdom. He says, come in faith, ask in faith with no doubting. Don't be like a wave tossed to and fro by the wind on the sea. In chapter 4, he says to them, you do not have because you do not ask. But it is a terribly, terribly damaging theology to live with suffering, to pray in faith, to ask God, and for God's answer then to be no and then instead of being able to live in the shadow of God's wing, resting in His sovereignty, resting in His answer, in despair-defying peace, saying, not my will, but yours be done, it is terribly damaging to then have to add to disappointment the guilt. Well, it must then just be my faith. That's not enough. Was Paul's faith not enough? When he told Timothy, drink a little wine to help with your symptoms, the symptoms of your ailment? Was his faith not enough when he left Trophimus sick in Miletus? When asking God three times to remove the thorn in the flesh, only for God to say, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Craig Blumberg in his commentary says, somewhere in our prayers, we must find a balance between never expecting God to heal and requiring him to heal on demand. We are to offer the prayer of faith, but the prayer of faith should also be the prayer of rest. Because more important than healing, always in the life of the believer, is what God wants to do, His will and His glory. So we've seen the praying Christian and the praying elders. Number three, the praying church. If there is one attitude that James has constantly called the church to adopt, it's humility. 
And that's no different now as he expands on his instruction in verse 16. He says, we're to be humble even in the pursuit of healing. Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Well, the specific focus uh, of James so far has been for physical, uh, the healing of physical sickness. It must be noted that the words he uses here, two different words in the Greek, both translated sick in the English, can refer to physical malady as well as spiritual malady. The terms he uses here, that you may be healed, can also mean in a spiritual sense. Sin is able, we need to just understand, is able to wound us, the whole person, body and soul. It's something that David knew full well, that connection. He knew that sin can cause us to run in pride and hide from God. And so despite all his failings and his flaws, David made humble introspection and humble seeking of God's faith the pattern of his life. He would always run to God and cry out to him in his need. Psalm 32, for example, verse 3 to 6, he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayers to you at a time when you may be found. Sounds very similar to James. He would agree, James 4, 8 to 10. He said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turning to, turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And while confession, I believe confession of sin is ultimately, it's a matter between the believer and God. Humility might mean for you today, it might mean the need to include in that confession uh, brothers and sisters in Christ who love you, who are able to come alongside. We're called to bear one another's burdens. Prior to World War II, um, in Nazi Germany, Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he trained young pastors in, in an underground seminary, and for a time, their lives were tightly knit together. And from that experience, he wrote a book called Life Together. In it, he speaks of the power of confession, how he saw the, the benefits of confession in their lives. He speaks of the isolation that sin brings that it drives us to a deadly autonomy. Sin is always going to get you to want to hide, to stay away. He said this, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. But confession, Confession to a trusted brother or sister destroys, he says, this deadly autonomy. It destroys hypocrisy and it leads to the flow of grace in the community. The humility that seeks out help is the humility that brings ultimately healing. But there is maybe another kind of humility, I believe, that James has in mind in this passage. The word, scholars point out, the word that he uses for confession here actually or usually implies an affirmation of truth. 
Uh, it can be a, like a normal confession. We, we speak of the confession of faith, for example. James, in other words, might be speaking here about acknowledging to each other the truth of your sinfulness. So in context, think about this. We've seen how James is deeply concerned about the fellowship of these believers in the trenches. And so as an alternate to the disorder that comes, he says in chapter 3, through bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, he says in 3 verse 18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so after warning about the dangers of broken fellowship, maybe what he's saying here is at the end he's returning to this idea. He's saying to the church, go to your brother in humility and heal what your sin has broken. Heal what has been broken by sin. That calls for three things, one commentator says, in the life of the church. There ought to be amongst us a spirit of penitence. A spirit of penitence. A putting to death of pride. Being willing to heal fractures, however hard that might be. It is difficult. It is difficult to go to somebody that you have wronged and to confess your sin to them especially in complicated matters where you think, well, they hurt me too. There needs to be a spirit of penitence and repentance. There needs to be a spirit of reconciliation. Quick, after hearing confession, to reach out a forgiving hand. And there should be, among the people of God, a spirit of prayer. We should be going together to the throne of grace again and again and again. For restoration, spiritual or physical, whatever it, need, it means. We want to be standing together in corporate expectation for the healing hand of God. And we cannot do it without humility, church. Finally, number four is the praying prophet. And I don't have time to deeply consider verses 17 to 18. I ran out of time this week in, in terms of my preparation so we won't consider the example of Elijah this week. Lord willing, we'll come back next week and consider his example as we wrap up. And there's definitely more to say about verse 16 than I'm going to say right now. But I want to close with James's words here and then just say one thing. He says this in verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And maybe you think to yourself today, I'm not the person that James is speaking about in this passage. That's why I don't ever pray really, hopefully. I don't pray big things expecting for God to move. Now, I believe that practical individual righteousness is connected to the effectiveness of our prayer life. And we'll talk about that next week. But James is not here talking about reaching another level of super spiritual saint. Like we have to reach that level before God is going to hear our prayers. In Christ, the way to the throne of grace has been opened. The curtain has been torn in two. He is the righteous one. He was perfect in life. And so in death, he gave his life as a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. Through faith in Christ alone, you can be reconciled to God the Father and invited to approach your standing before him, righteous in Christ. 
In Philippians 3 verse 9, Paul is speaking about giving up all things. He says, I've given up all things to gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Does that include you today? Is that your standing today? It can be. It can be through faith in Jesus. And if it includes you, this is the wonderful truth about prayer. It's the stunning, stunning invitation that we live daily in and that we use so little. Alec Matia in his commentary says, This is part of the wonder of the way of prayer. Those who by grace have been given the status of righteousness in God's sight have been brought into the realm where effective prayer operates and have been given the right to exercise a ministry of prayer. So what are you waiting for? What is the big thing that you're praying for? What is the matter of God's glory And the kingdom of God that weighs so upon your soul that you feel the need constantly to bring it to the Lord in prayer. Let us wake up, church. Let us come together to the throne of grace. Let us bear one another's burdens before His throne. Let us pray for the lost in our community. Let us pray that He would revive among us a ministry for the lost. Let us pray for the missionaries that we support, that towers of opposition in the world will fall and that the gospel will prevail. Let us bring our request to him. What is it that's on your heart? Let us pray. Our Father, we, we know that we so little use the invitation that you have given that we become caught up in anxiety and in worry and in despair and in discouragement. Father, we pray that you would help us to pray. We pray for your spirit to guide us and to remind us of this invitation, the one that we have through your Son. Jesus, we are so grateful for your work on the cross to reconcile us to the Father. We are so grateful that you have opened up the way into the holy of holies and that we could stand in the presence of our Father, loved 100% as we stand in you. We thank you, Lord, for your patience with us. Even the weakness of our prayers even the way we speak like children. We're thankful for the fact that even that you, you desire for us to approach, that it is pleasing to you when we set our hearts upon you and our faith upon you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would work. We pray, Father, that you would work in this church to bring healing where there needs to be healing. We pray for our budgetary concerns, Lord. You are the the God with every resource in heaven and on earth. We pray that you would 
sustain us and grow us, given us the capacity to be able to receive more, to do more, to love more. We pray all of this for your glory and the glory of Christ alone. Amen.